This episode of the DGMG podcast, that's my podcast, is brought to you by Oribi, O-R-I-B-I, O-R-I-B-I, Oribi. Here's the cool thing about them advertising on this podcast, by the way, just a quick note, it's working. So a bunch of people actually went and used Oribi and signed up and started having success with the product. So they came back and they were like, Dave, can we keep sponsoring your podcast? And I said, yes, it's always great when it works out that way. And Oribi is awesome because they are providing an alternative, finally, an alternative to Google Analytics. And it's the alternative that a lot of people have been waiting for. I talked to a lot of marketers and Google Analytics is one of those things that you love it or hate it. And so if you're in that other camp or just looking for something new, you should go and check out Aribi. They have customers like Sony, Audi, Panasonic, and Pizza Hut. And it's great because once you connect Aribi to your website, you can really quickly analyze what's going on and see how people engage, not just with a form on your website, but with everything. CTAs, forms, pop-ups, images, videos, landing pages, and it works across all the domains that you have. And you can even see specifically what is leading to conversions. And marketing is ultimately just a game of let's go do more of what's working. So Aribi can help show you that. And the best part is it happens all automatically, right? You're busy, I'm busy. Using Aribi is like having a marketing analyst on your team working 24 hours a day that can give you what you need on demand. And whether you have a new campaign running, new ad creative, new landing page, there's so many things that we are testing and want to be measuring daily. And it's really easy to do that with Aribi, even if it's something like you just shipped a new pillar piece of content that the team has been working on for months and you want to know how that content is impacting conversion, you can do that. Just log into Aribi. You'll learn how people are interacting with all of your marketing. And in no time, you'll get better at prioritizing what's working. And so you can throw out what's not and double down on the stuff that actually is having an impact. Plus, it's super simple to set up. They've got great customer service and tech support in case you need any help. And if you're like me, I'm sending a million questions in to customer support, but maybe that's just me. You can check them out at aribi.io. That's O-R-I-B-I dot I-O. And if you do aribi.io slash DGMG, and you sign up through that link, you'll get 20% off any plan or punch in the promo code DGMG. You'll get 20% off any plan Oribi.io, O-R-I-B-I.io. Check them out and say bye-bye to Google Analytics. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Lemon Pie. They're the ones who produce this show for me. They're awesome at what they do, and I can't recommend their work enough. They make it super easy for me, and I know that they can help you too if you want to launch a podcast strategy for your brand. Check them out at www.lemonpie.fm and tell them I sent you. That's www.lemonpie.fm. Tell them that I sent you. All right, let's get into this episode. Hey, I'm Dave Gerhardt, and you're listening to the DGMG Podcast. This is the place where I share my marketing lessons and learnings every week. My guest on this episode is Martin Gontovnikas. He's co-founder at Hypergrowth Partners, former SVP of growth at Auth0, and affectionately known as Gonto. Okay, Ganto, we just connected. So I got so many things that we're going to talk about today, but can you just briefly give some background and then also there was a big exit that just happened. So give all the give all the details of who you are, what you do, and then we're going to get into all like the what you did on this episode. Makes sense. So my name is Martin Gontonicas, but as you said, everybody calls me Gonto, even though my mom hates it because she thinks that Martin is a great name. I'm basically a weird marketer now because I started as a systems engineer. I started coding when I was young. I coded for maybe eight years of my career. And then I built some open source projects. And I realized that for me, 
it was more fun actually making those repositories popular versus having to build them myself. That's when I moved to the dark side and started to focus more on marketing. From there, I joined Outzero as the sixth employee and started with developer relations, which means like doing marketing for developers, like writing blog posts, giving talks and stuff like that. From there, because I'm Argentinian, I have opinions on everything. They might be right or wrong, but I have opinions on marketing, on what we should do, how it works, and stuff like that. And from there, I got the opportunity to actually lead all of the marketing team at OutZero. Fast forwarding a bit to the future, I ended up leading a team of 100 people. We actually just signed a merger for acquisition with Okta for $6.5 billion. And I recently also left OutZero to start something new with Guillaume Cavain, or G, even though my accent for G sucks, as most people know it. And we are called Hypergrowth Partners, and we're here to help companies also achieve the similar hypergrowth in exchange for equity. So we're a different type of consultant. Awesome. One question right off the bat for you, other than your Argentinian opinions. I, I don't think that sounds much different than most Americans that I know. They have opinions <laughs> on everything. Um, <laughs> but... Okay, so typically somebody like you who gets into marketing, more of an engineering background, you're similar to G in that perspective. How come what you do isn't called growth? Everybody says, no, this sounds like growth. Engineering-led, Auth0 is like a product-led company. Uh, why don't you call it growth then? I think it is growth as well, but it was a mixture of the two. Like at Outzero, the first three years, I would say it was growth. It was like Tim and Jen, it was like the numbers working the numbers, making sure that it works and stuff like that. But then the last two or three years as the company started to grow, we had to do more branding play, public relations, and more of that stuff. So it's a bit of, of both. But being honest, as you said, I'm more passionate about growth because to me, numbers are more much easier than people's emotion and their psychology and stuff like that. A lot of people, like at least in DGMG that I see the group, like a lot of people love asking about growth-first marketing. Do you have an opinion on that? So to me, at least, like growth-first marketing will work depending on the persona that you target. Like, for yes. example, for developer startups, I always say that developers have a very high bullshit sniffer. So for them, it's a bit harder, I think, to do like a branding play, where if you work on education and giving value and stuff like that, more on the content side, then you can optimize for growth based on how much people are coming to your website, how you can convert them and what you can do. I do think that for some other roles and personas, it's impossible to do that because, for example, at Outzero, when we targeted like a VP of product, of a big company, they're not going to read our content, our blog. Maybe they send their EA to read our content. So for those, you cannot do, I think, a growth-focused marketing. Okay, you mentioned that Auth0, you had like early years that you were there, you're, you're more focused on demand gen, you know, high volume, conversion rate optimization stuff. Then you shifted to, to brand. Can you just share that experience like and the progression? Because I think a lot of companies... You know, marketing at the end of the day, you got you got to do it all. You got to be able to do it all. You and I were talking before this. I, my nature is more in the brand side, but I've now had to learn some of the demand gen side. And so it's not. How do you make the change? You know, what's different? Can you just talk about the evolution of the channels? Yeah. So for me, at least, and how I was thinking about it is, I know nothing about marketing. So it's we need to try experiments and try things to start getting attention. I was a developer, so I knew that if you were adding value and you were educating people, they were going to come. 
So in the beginning, we just did that. We created good quality content, and then we tapped into people's habits. I always say that Dimension is tapping into people's habits. So, yeah. for example, they were looking for projects in GitHub. We sponsored GitHub projects. They were looking that we couldn't do ads to them mostly, but they used Twitter to learn. So when Twitter, they cannot block ads, which they have ad blocker. So stuff like that. And we did that don't, up don't to you 25... Think, don't you think like you... I just want to pause. I interrupted you to just pause there because, like, I think it's so important, which is like, it's not that you just started creating content and it worked. It's like you were a developer. And so you could, like, you knew what that audience wanted. It's like how I feel right now with like DGMG and you're, you're in there. So, you know, it's like, I know what marketing people want because I am one and I've done that. And so, like, I can, like, deliver the content. And, but guess what? When that happens, it works and you build an audience. And so, like, was that the secret to the the success? It's not that like, oh, developers want content and we wrote developer content. Because like, if it was me writing developer content, it wouldn't have been as good as you. I think it's that. And it's also that I also like to stay on top of like developer trends. So for example, what we did was jump on trends. Like AngularJS was a popular framework, but it was like version 0.6. And we jumped into the wave to become thought leaders in that. We built relationship by going to talks with the influencers of AngularJS, for example. And then they started to do distribute our content. And because they distributed that, we became thought leaders on that. So it was because exactly because of that. When we moved to other personas and other roles that I was not, not that, like a product manager or an enterprise architect, we did a shitload of like qualitative interviews to understand what do they like to learn, how, where, and stuff like that, because we didn't know exactly how to do it otherwise. And so when, when you started to do all that stuff... Did you have so, this like all, per- perfectly measured funnel? Like, how did you know that stuff was working? So, like, my first hires were actually a data person and a content person were the two first hires. So, one was helping me measure, and we built it at a warehouse and metrics from the beginning. So, we had everything measured from the beginning because I was obsessed personally with that. So, we could see if it was working or not. The one thing that was hard for me was being patient because the first experiments and the first things that we tried didn't work at all, even though I was a developer as well. So it took a couple of months, but then it started to work out. And following up on your first question, we started to move more to brand because of two things. Because one, we got to like 25 million in ARR by doing good content, good developer strategy, good influencer. But then what happened was that we needed to get more two things. One is predictable revenue. Because inbound, we didn't know when was coming, what was coming, and why. And the other one was we were starting to get a diminishing growth rate year over year. And if we didn't improve it, we weren't going to hit the doubling revenue year over year. So that's when we were like, okay, now we're freaking out. We need to do something. What is it? Triple, triple, double, double? Exactly. That's exactly how Fido's path. And we were like, we're not going to continue doubling if we cannot do or get another channel or do something else. Okay, let's go back to something you mentioned there, which is so that that kind of content influencer trends. Also, what you said is so important. Also, like if you're listening to this, what Ganto said is so important, which is like you have to be up on trends. Like if you want to come in a new space, like you have to have your finger on the pulse of what your people and are talking about. And so that's the value of being on social media and being in groups and communities and podcasts and all that stuff. You mentioned this is so real. You mentioned going from to 25 million through inbound. And that's amazing, right? That's amazing. Most companies would kill to do that. However, 
the thing that sucks about it is it's like, it's hard to be like next month we need to grow by X. And so that we're going to crank this lever to this. It's like, it's very hard to predictably scale that. Exactly. And we need it now predictable revenue because we were growing and we wanted to eventually be a public business or something similar. And we also, as I said, we were having diminishing growth returns now because we've captured the majority of, I would say, like early adopters or innovators. And we were like, okay, it's time now to try something different with other personas, other roles, and see if we can do some other type of marketing now. Just from a, a curiosity standpoint, like when you're once you build out those predictable revenue channels, did you just take your like inbound and just say like this is the baseline, this is what's going to come in, or did you like did you actually get to a point where you could quantify that? So we eventually could quantify that. So when we said okay, we're going to try something different, we started to focus on more. Actually, our first one was account based marketing. It was okay, let's pick some accounts. And let's do direct mail, let's do webinars, let's do like typical B2B demand gen. And in the beginning, I remember I hired somebody and they were worried that I was going to let them go because it wasn't working out. And it took us actually nine months to get that up and running. So what actually was a good call is that we started only doing outbound like one year or one year and a half before inbound was going to run out because otherwise we would have been fucked. Yeah, it's great. It's it's a great lesson for anything, which is like, and I've made this mistake is like to be always testing for the next thing. And like this comes up a lot in DGMG, which is like you have to be able to balance like short term and long term. And so you got to split the budget. Like, how did you actually do that? Did you set, because it, it's hard, right? Like you had a team, everybody's stressed, there's high growth, high goals, everybody's busy enough trying to do things that hit the number today. Like, how do you balance those things? So we actually had between 20 and 30% of the budget was all set for experiments. And when we had an experiment, we were actually putting that we expected no pipeline and no revenue from most of that. The other thing that we did is we had like an experimenting team and they had no responsibility of maintaining the things that they did. So a demand gen team has to then maintain the relationship, like build the database, contact them, etc. This team could try an experiment. And if it worked, we actually evolved it and moved it to the real demand gen team instead of having that like scout team continue to maintain. Because if you maintain and continue doing the things that work, you don't have no space and no time to experiment because yeah. all of your time goes to the things that are working out. And so like, was the scout, is that what it was actually called inside of the team? Like the scout team? And that was a team that you built? Yes, it was. The, the name wasn't Scout. We were calling it like growth experimentation or something like that. But it was really a Scout team. And they were literally just trying new things and then like evolving them and moving them to other parts of the organization as they, as they started working. And so do you just like, were you just like time, bo- like, hey, you, you know, you're, you're supposed to test X new things a month. Like, how do you give them goals if the goal is not revenue? So on those cases, like what we were doing on the budget was, okay, what, how many experiments are we doing per month or per quarter? And as we started to see some of them starting to bring pipeline or revenue, those are the ones that we said, okay, this out. Now we need predictability from this. Yep. Got it. Cause it's like, it's almost like you want to incentivize them strictly on volume because the more like shit you can test, the more you can learn where it's like the way to measure that team is like, wait, we only did one experiment this month. It's better be a, a big ass experiment. You gave a great benchmark in there that I think people, I want to go back to and pause for people to, to, so they can write it down or remember it. Just like to have, I wish I knew this earlier in my career, just to have the confidence to say, yeah, you're going to give me a million dollar marketing budget. I'm going to take 300K of that and earmark that for experimentation. And 
I think just to have the discipline of splitting that out makes it really easy. It makes it hard when you've maxed out the budget, you've maxed out the hiring, and then you're trying to figure out, well, where can I grab 10 grand to go test this thing? Because then you're like, wait, you're taking 10 grand out of, you know, SEM. We could have been, you know, that could have been 59, you know, new meetings this month or something. Exactly. And I think that carving it out separately was the like it was separate. Like we were never going to touch that for anything that wasn't an experiment. Yeah. And in the beginning it was hard to sell that. Once they started to see that it worked, like the executive team, then they were like, we should invest more in experiments. Can you talk about how you how you got that? Like, did you pitch that as an idea to the exec team and say, like, hey, I'm gonna because you do have to justify that. It's not like they're just like, hey, here's your budget. You had to make the case for why I'm gonna take 20 or 30 percent. The thing they are like, what actually helped me is that I wasn't a marketer and I had no idea about marketing. So in the beginning, it was all experiments. And they had already seen that some of the experiments started to work after three to six months. So then it was like more about, look, now we need to do the same, but for other departments and for other things, because it worked in the beginning. So with previous wins, of course, it's much easier. In the beginning, I could do it because we were so small that we had no idea of what to do. So it was easy to test because that's the only thing we could do. You keep saying you're you're not a marketer, you're not a marketer. What do you think has changed? What did you learn about marketing as an engineer coming in? And then like how do you define the role of what good marketing should be today based on that? It's a very good and interesting question. Like I see a lot of marketing that is what I call like void of content or empty of content, where you see content that means nothing. They know nothing about your audience, they know nothing about what you do. And I personally like deeply hate that because we spend so much time thinking and building on things that add value or make sense. That's one. The other thing that I don't like about like what I call bad marketing is I see a lot of like manipulation in general of like people's emotions and how they're going to react and stuff like that, which of course being fully transparent, like every marketer does it, like we do it as well, but you have to do it in a way that I think makes sense. And it's making people just dive deeper into more and understanding more. But that's something that at least for me, being an engineer was very interesting. What I see so much people are just cramping content or cramping emails or cramping webinars with literally no value and nothing to say. Yeah, I think one of the one of the symptoms of a lot of mediocre marketing teams is just that everybody's just doing stuff. Like you can't give anybody feedback because everybody's so busy and everybody's so stressed. But you're like, well, we're doing all this stuff. Everyone's so busy, but we're not generating the results. Exactly. And it's also about like what and how do you measure results? Like I was measured by pipeline and revenue that we were bringing. I see so many people talking about like leads and MQLs and this and that. And we had no MQLs. We had nothing besides either leads that were coming and revenue that we were converting. Of course, there are middle steps, but it's about that. I need to do a mashup clip. I need to take every, so like whether it's you, six and a half billion dollar exit, CMO of Twilio, CMO of Gong, former CMO at Slack. I could do a mashup and each one of them says, I'm measured on pipeline, I'm measured by pipeline, I'm measured by pipeline, I'm measured by pipeline, I'm measured by pipeline. So like, I'm using this as a teaching moment, which is like, if you're listening to this podcast and you do not have a super clear goal in your role of a marketer that relates to pipeline, you need to go back and tomorrow get a one-on-one with your manager and your boss say, hey, 
Can I have a goal that's aligned to revenue? Because at the end of the day, and I think this is the hard part, I didn't know this until I was in the seat, but I know it now. It's like at the end of the day, you want to keep your job in marketing. And the way to keep your job as a marketing leader, what the CEO at the end of the day, there's one thing that they care about, and they care about revenue. As long as you're feeding the pipeline and you're hitting the company revenue goals, you're going to keep your job as a marketer. They're not going to be like, well, you know, we don't like the font color on our website. Oh, no, but we've grown triple, triple, double every year. And I think you're going to keep your job. Exactly. And I also think it gives you leeway to be able to try new things. Because if you're fucking up on con pipeline and you're not getting to the number, you cannot try new things. You cannot experiment. As long as you can hit that, like they will believe in you. So belief, I think, from the CEO actually comes from numbers, from the revenue on the pipeline. Perfect. Glad to hear you say that. Hey, real quick, I just want to plug the DGMG community. You can go and join it right from my website, davegerhardt.com. By the way, if you haven't been there, davegerhardt.com, you'll have all the links. That's how you can go join. But DGMG, the community, it's my members-only B2B marketing community. In the last year, it's grown to over 2,500 members. And it's incredible because it's like having a sounding board outside of your company, which is so valuable as a marketer. So inside of the group, people are getting feedback. They're getting recommendations on tools. They're getting campaign ideas there. Sometimes people even message me to post anonymous questions about salary and hiring and interviewing. And I'm in the group every single day, like sharing my own stuff too. There's 10 to 12 new posts every day. If you join, you can go all the way back as far as the group goes to see all of the content from the last year. And I don't want to oversell it, but I know that you'll see our ROI from it instantly. It's $10 a month to join. You can cancel at any time, so there's really no risk. And you can kind of you can always DM me and tell me if you thought it was a fraud. So it's $10 a month to join. There's 2,500 members in there. It's become an incredibly valuable part of my workflow as a marketer, and I know it will for you too. So you can go and sign up at davegerhart.com. There's a link you'll see over there to join the DGMG community. All right, let's get back to this episode. Since you're such an uh, engineer guy first, measurement guy, did you try to quantify more of the brand stuff? Like, how did your marketing, because, like, yes, you're measured on revenue, but you must have had some type of like marketing scorecard. Like, here are the six goals that we have for the team. We did. And I would say that we were miserably successful in most of them. So, we, first of all, we tried to do attribution, like first time attribution, last time attribution, multi touch, and all of them. And for example, first touch is sometimes useful, but multi-touch attribution, I just hate it because you're putting like a percentage subjective to like how each of the touch points work and each company is different. So that didn't work for us. Similarly, we tried different measures and actually what worked is very crazy, but is we have manual inspection of opportunities every week by field marketers and um, regional marketers and stuff like that because that manual inspection means that one, we're making sure that it's attributed to us if we did it. And secondly, because they read the opportunities and reading out the emails that we sent, what like social media campaigns, what ads, etc. We actually know firsthand what works and what doesn't. And we're much better at iterating what's being done. But I think that the manual attribution was the big part and key to our success. Other than that, for branding specifically, we also tried multiple things. We even tried like standard deviation, looking if there was like a standard deviation of increment of like leads or pipeline per region when we did something, didn't work out at all. And we ended up doing just a quarterly or every six months, like brand awareness survey, just to see if it's improving or not, but it's very hard. Okay, can you, so can you explain manual attribution? Yes, so what we do is, 
Like every week, there's new opportunities. There's new opportunities by either a specific region or digital or field marketing. So what we did for every new opportunity is that a field marketer was looking at them and looking if either like most of the campaigns were marketing or if the catalyst was a marketing one based on how much time happened, what was the conversation on the email, what was the conversation that they had using like Gong or something similar. And they actually marked it as demand gen claim which is the field in Salesforce. And then that field in Salesforce was then measured by the head of demand gen and me as well to make sure that it made sense. And we reported then on pipeline generated by marketing using that manual inspection method. Right. But that doesn't give you like the channel. So you know that you know that, that meeting was driven by marketing, but you don't know what would be the point of that. So we know, first of all, we know that like that opportunity was driven by marketing. But then the point is we actually take notes of what was the catalyst? Like, for example, we did like 100 emails, we did a webinar, then nothing happened for three months. Then we were at the Gartner event, they talked to us, and then they wanted to buy us and convert to an opportunity. So then we knew, okay, this Gartner event at this specific moment in time, it works. So by inspecting, we are much better at knowing what things are converting or what things work better first. Right. And next year, you can make a better decision when you're like, should we spend 150 grand at the Gartner thing? It's not always perfect data, but you roughly can. Yeah, I remember we booked it. We generated a ton of pipeline from that event. We should go place that bet again. Exactly. It's not mathematical, but at least we remember we've seen a bunch. And that's what we did. Like we actually doubled down on Gardner based on inspecting and looking manually at those opportunities. Yeah, it's such a game of like gut. I think this is the, you know, listen, people that are listening, you're listening to a, an engineer telling you that like it's still not going to be perfect, right? This guy just exited a com- six and a half billion dollar exit, marketing team of 100 people, probably hundreds of millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions in ARR. And he's saying that attribution is not perfect. The point of attribution is a gut feeling, not just a gut feeling, but it's so you can articulate where you should go spend more because ultimately you're tasked with growing revenue. It's just an input for you to make a decision on where can we go get more revenue from. Exactly. And even on some cases, we did bets without attribution. Like we did a lot of interviews, like qualitative interviews, for example, and through like GLG talking to like C-levels and BP-levels, and they knew about companies that they've either seen online or in a billboard or something like that, not because they were reading. And we ended up deciding to do like a big marketing brand campaign with like billboards and other stuff actually based on that, based on information that they wouldn't have seen us in any other way. Okay, let's go into your team a little bit. People will want to know, what what was the, you had a 100-person team, so can you go into go into the whole org if you can? Like, how many direct reports did you have? What are their roles? Let's just start with that. Yep. So the teams that we had were one was growth, as you said. The growth team was focused mostly on inbound, and they were focused on the funnel, on looking at when people came, how did they convert. They were running continuous A/B testing on the website, and then like staying on top of like what was happening, why, and trying to convert. They also were the team that had the experiments who didn't have to maintain things because once things worked, they moved to another team. That team was actually a set of engineers, marketers, and designers all working together so that we could have the time and the power to try multiple things. In the past, we had engineers in other places and it was just so hard to get their time or to get things done in that way. 
Another team was Bimanjen. That's a more typical Bimanjen org. We had what we called regional marketing, which was per region. And they were doing field stuff like events, but they were also doing like webinars or mail campaigns or nurtures that were specific to that region as well or implementing them um, for that specific region. Dimension also had account-based marketing and also had a team that was writing the scripts and the content for all of the ADR nurtures. So all of the ADR or VDR nurtures were coming from marketing and from that Dimension team, um, actually. We then had marketing operations, typical marketers, Salesforce connections, how it worked, etc. In the end, that moved to a centralized RevOps team, but during most of the time, it was reporting into me. We then had global communications, and that was public relations and analyst relations, so working with Gardner, Forrester, and typical PR. We then had developer marketing, because we were targeting developers, and that team had two teams, two sub-teams inside. One was developer relations, which were mostly doing community building and then doing talks and stuff like that. And something we, were, we had that was different is we had a technical content marketing team that were all programmers and engineers that were writing content. So we had a team of nine people that were engineers that were writing content for engineers, moving the inbound engine for us. And then we had a product and solutions marketing, which is a typical product marketing, solutions marketing. And then we had a team that was called like business content. And it was basically content that was not for developers and was more for VPs, C-level, directors, and stuff like that. As a new marketing leader, can you just talk about how you went with this team structure? Because it's not what we typically see. And I think one of the traps that marketing people fall into is that like, well, I got to have product marketing, demand gen. We fall into this trap of like, there's got to be these four buckets of teams when the reality is the more I talk to people like you, I realize everyone's got a different team structure. And I just, I want you to talk through that. For us, like, I would love to say, yeah, I thought this through and it was like, this is the team that we're building. That wasn't the case. For us, it was more about we were trying experiments and trying multiple things. And as some of them started to work out, we created teams. The first thing was I was personally writing the content and going to the conferences. And I saw that that started to work. So then like in my mind was, okay, we need to hire engineers who write content because the times that we tried writing content for engineers and it's not by engineers, they sucked and they didn't convert. So then we said, okay, we're going to create one team for that. From there, we said, okay, now we need to improve the people that are coming, their conversion. Like, okay, we saw that if somebody comes four times or eight times to the website, they're going to convert this. So we had ideas on what to add from growth. And it's like, okay, we need to create a growth team. But it was all like that where we started to try things. And as they started to work, we started to put teams. And it was only about three years ago when we were above actually 50 million that we started to actually sit down and think more about team structure, what worked, what didn't. Yeah, and how we had to be set up. No, I think I think it's great. I think that's the to me that's the best way to hire in marketing in the early days, at least. Which is like somebody on the team should be doing that in some capacity, similar to your story. Like I was doing most of the first marketing stuff at Drift, and it's like, oh, I did the first four or five events by myself, and so I kind of had a firsthand look at the playbook, the success, and like and what good might look like, and how it benefits the team if we had somebody in this role. And then hired. I think anytime I've made a, a big miss in hiring, it's because we were like 
brand new role, brand new idea. We've never tested it before internally. Let's see. Because then there's just there's too many variables. It's like the variable of the person, the variable of the role inside of the company, resources. It's always better if you can try to do it first. But as you grow, you do have to make leaps and be like, I don't know, we've never done field marketing. We got to hire somebody. Yes. 100%. That was exactly the past. Like for Dim and Jen, I knew we had to try something different. I've never done it. So I did a leap way and like we tried somebody to hire for that. And she ended up kicking us. Just because I'm curious, how did you hire engineers? You know, did you hire like engineers who'd be making $150,000, $180,000 to just quit their engineering jobs and write content for you? Yes, we were paying them as engineers and they were just writing content for us because we did the math on how much deals we were bringing by each blog post that they wrote. And it was actually worth paying them that money. What was hard was selling them that they needed right. to write content. But for us, it was like, as a developer, you have like two types, one that wants depth and one that wants breadth. And we were looking for people who wanted breadth, meaning learning multiple things. And we were telling them, you can learn multiple things you will actually pay you to do that. You will be able to write open source code that everybody will read, will, will look at. And then you only have to spend two or three days writing an article. Because the crazy thing is the grammar doesn't have to even be great in this case. If the content is fantastic and it's actually written by another engineer, we use the service that's called Wordy, which is like a, a English teachers from like primary school as a service who helped us then create like better content from the content that we had in the that's beginning. Great. That's great. So if we go all the way back to the beginning, you said we started creating, like this is the problem with marketing. It can be that simple, which is like you sell a product to developers, you built a marketing function that led with content for developers. People just read that on the surface. They're like, I can do that. But if you unpack this whole story, Ganto's here telling me that they matched an engineer's salary to just write content for them, which built their inbound funnel. That is the crazy story of how Auth0 Auth built an inbound marketing machine. It's not, oh, they grew because they decided to write content for developers. It's actually two things. It's like one, I would say it's like, it's that that you said. It's looking at the trends and knowing what to write about. And it's also about the influencer plan where we went to like 10 conferences to speak around the world and not because of the listeners. We didn't care as much about the listeners. It was because we were going to these conferences with the creators of the framework and the influencers. We went for beers and wine and partying with them. And then they were sharing our content because we had a relationship. So all of that mixed together was what helped us like bootstrap our growth in the beginning. What's on your mind? You seem like the type of guy that might have something to say. So I'm just going to not ask you a question and see what you got right now. So one thing that I can talk about that I think was very, very important for us was actually the qualitative interviews. Like we did a lot of interviews. Like for example, we tried with product managers of Fortune 1000 uh, companies to the same as with developers, creating good quality content, hiring a product manager and stuff like that. And it failed miserably. Like it was so bad. So we started doing some interviews with product managers. And when we talked to like eight or nine of them, what we found out was that they didn't read content for blog, the ones that we wanted. They read analysts, and they actually all went, like six out of eight, to a meetup called uh, Product Tank, which I didn't even know it existed before then. So we started to like create content for that, like do talks and stuff like that. So something that to me was a big learning is how 
marketing is not about getting people to go out of their way to read your content or to do stuff because they will never do it. To me, it's more about like what habits, how do they learn, what apps do they use during the day and why, and just tapping into that versus something else. Something that was also good for us is that for those product managers, when we were interviewing, I actually sent them a, a mail personally saying, I have questions about how you learn about identity. I will not sell you the product. I will not talk to you about the product. And I will actually pay you $100 for half an hour. And with a lot of emojis. I'm a big fan of emojis. <laughs> so that was how we convinced them to start actually coming and talking to us to understand a bit more of their habits. Was this in the early days or something that you did ongoing? We did ongoing. Every time we moved to a new persona and a new thing, we continued to do. So in the early days, I didn't do it as much because I was a developer. But when we sold to product managers, to marketers, to others, we yeah. continually did it. Well, it's really nice to match that with like with gone calls, right? Because like on calls, you're talking about a specific pain, the solution. But what you get out of those calls that you mentioned is like, what blogs do you read? What podcasts do you listen to? And then you start to pattern match and you're like, oh, interesting. All these people are obsessed with, like here, I'll give you a good example. I just had April, I did, uh, had April Dunford on, on this podcast and I had never read her book, but I saw everybody had been talking about her. And so I read her book and then reached out to her. And that episode is the most popular episode that I've done by far already. And that's not because we talked about anything different, but I just pattern matched the like, oh, this episode is going to be right up the alley of these people. And I think that's what's so powerful with having an intimate you know, knowledge of your audience beyond your product. Where do they hang out? Where do they spend their time? Who influences them? Like Seth Godin calls this the sneezers. You want to find the people, you know, who do they follow? Okay, well, they all go to this one event. And so in your world, maybe you can be the first company of your kind to go sponsor product con or do something interesting there. Exactly. And I think that's something important that you mentioned is intent. Like a lot of times we have content that just sucks, but because the title is great and people care about that because of intent, they still download it and we get to talk to them. But I think that intent, as you said, is a big part of it as well. Can you talk about being a marketing exec and working with the CEO and managing expectations and managing you know other other parts of the company? Because I think that's such a variable in marketing that we don't talk about a lot. That I like to talk about on this show is just like you know the actual job of a marketing leader. I think the time that I dread the most is setting the budget by far. Like um, what I would say is. The budget is the time that I interact the most with the CEO, the CRO, and the rest of the team because we're asking for more money. And in exchange, we need to create pipeline. And they maybe don't believe that we should invest in brand because the CFO comes and they're like, branding, why do you invest in that if it's not bringing revenue? Like, what does it mean? So I do think there's a lot of actually selling the idea and explaining how it's going to work and stuff like that. There's also in budget a lot of magic as well. Like, we have past successes, but is it going to be as good? Is it going to be better? I don't know. Like We're putting a guess. That's the reality on how it's going to work out. But that, I think, was a big part of the relationship. Is It's a two to three months process of like push and pull and how to get to the budget. Besides that, something that was really useful for me was having a marketing dashboard. Like We had a marketing dashboard with, at most, 10 metrics, not more than that. And that's the thing that we discussed very often and looking at the metrics, how were they doing, what was working out, what wasn't, and things like that. And mm -hmm. I try to always do a good job of bringing up fuck-ups very early 
Because if they heard it from somebody else, that would look very bad on me. So every time we fucked up, I was like raising my hand like, hey, I'm sorry, like we fucked this up. Yeah. Okay. Let's pause on that for a sec. That is such an important lesson, which is like, if you're going to drop a bomb on the CEO and the other execs, it shouldn't be in the that meeting. It should be like, hey, Monday morning, can I grab you for 10 minutes? All right. So look, this is going to happen. We're going to miss by this much. Here's where it's going to be. Here's why. We know why, or we don't know why, but here's what we're doing. They just want to know action. It sucks. But in most of the times that I thought it's almost like parenting, which is like, in most of the times that I thought I was going to get yelled at, I didn't get yelled at. 100% agree. Like, I always thought I was going to be yelled at as well. And that <laughs> never happened because at least we were trying to find out. And they knew that if we were trying to find out in one yeah. week, at least they will get a result of like, what's working or not working. Ultimately, like the worst scenario is you, as a marketing leader, you say, I don't know, right? Like, the answer may be like, I don't know yet. However, here's what we're doing. We've already done this. We've already done that. And so like my approach had been like, let's say that like executive meetings on a Friday. On Monday, if I come in and I, and I start to talk to the team and, I, and it looks like we're behind, I'm immediately going to try to flag that to the CEO or whoever my boss is. And we're going to have a conversation about it outside of that room. And so then when I present that to the rest of the executive team on Friday, I don't have all the other execs poking holes in this plan. I'm walking in saying, we screwed up. Here's where we're at. Here's what's happening. Blah, 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 blah. Because people just want action. Like it already happened. There's nothing we can do about it. Here's the plan. Like here's what we're going to do. I 100% agree. Other two things that I think are important about like talking with executives, like there's a lot of people who don't want to talk about the elephant of the room or what's working or what's not working. And actually something that I think is bad or harder when the company grows is like, I, I was always the one that is like, we're not going to have to be talking about like this thing because it's fucked up. Like we should talk about it. Like we should do something about it. But I think that in every executive team, you should have at least one person that is raising the flag on things that people do not want to talk about. Of course, I bring it up first, like one-on-one, -on -one, but then if they don't want to talk it, I do think that we still need to talk about it. So with that, sometimes you look at some hate from people, but I think it's worth it. It's something that helps a lot with the companies as well to at least have one person and I personally like doing it, but I, I, I don't think most do. <laughs> I was gonna ask if that was you at most if that was you at most companies. Yeah. <laughs> that was Other? me. One thing I do have to learn is to talk less. Like I talk too much, as you probably know here, because I'm interrupting you now. And that's no, something no, that I need skill. to learn. <laughs> it's hard. It's like the, I would tell you the real the delicate balance of being a an exec is uh, knowing when to talk and when not to talk. <laughs> because there's sometimes you could be like that. I could mention that, but that could derail us for an hour and there's no point in doing that. And so you got to pick, you got to pick and choose your battles. I agree 100%. That's something I still need to learn. How did you evolve as a marketing? I know you're an engineer, but like as a, you're a marketing person, come on. How did you evolve as a marketing person from, you know, Ganto like being the first creator at the company to Ganto running a team of a hundred people. Like, what are the evolution? And that was six years. So that's in a big part of your life. Obviously, you're going to change. But how did you change through the business? So I think what's interesting is at first I was like thinking about what to do and literally doing everything because I wasn't much many people, like much more people. So I would knew what worked, what didn't, how. And I'm personally a big fan of control. So I like that a lot because I knew what was coming. And how things were being done. From there, I would say the next step was 
like starting to manage a team and feeling that I do nothing. And what I mean by doing nothing is I was helping manage the team and giving ideas, but I wasn't executing. So it was so hard not doing things by myself because I felt I wasn't adding value. The imposter syndrome of I'm not being useful. So I actually booked myself time to at least have a project two or three hours a week to feel better. From there, it was like managers of managers. And it's like, now I have no fucking control. Like, how do I know what's going on? And it was about doing like skip level meetings to know more what's happening and why. So I think that that plus worry was another part that was very hard as we were growing. And then the other one is, then I couldn't talk to everybody because the people who reported to reported and reported to somebody, to me, I didn't care, but they did. So it's like, I cannot talk to everybody. I cannot say the same thing. So I even have right. to be careful about what I said, to whom I said it, how I said it, because that might get them to work on something else. So that was the other yeah. part of learning and learning how to influence the team without talking to them by setting guidelines and letting go and having my team think the ideas and stuff like that instead of me. And the work was more about like setting the vision, the strategy, and not setting exactly what we were going to do. So the whole evolution was a bit hard for me. I have to yeah, say. Yeah, that's great. It's so relatable because I'm like, look, I want, I'll just set the goals. I want you to do it your way. I want to give you the freedom. I want you to do it your way. Like also me, you know, 10 minutes into the project, like, no, 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 it's got to look like this. We got <laughs> we to do it this way. Like, <laughs> it is what it is. I'm working on it. But at the same time, like, it's a, what do you engineers say? It's a feature, not a bug. Your point is real though about like, it is a balance and people are more likely to enjoy what they're doing when they are, when you feel like it's your own idea, you know, you're going to have more leeway. And so I've had to learn that there's my way of doing it, but we can also achieve the same goal doing it three different ways. One, one thing that's true in marketing is like, it doesn't always have to be this way. It's like you can achieve, and I've learned that about content, which is like, it might not be right, my writing style, but there's five different ways you could write this article and it could be successful. Yes, and you cannot, once you have an order that's big, like there's always going to be mistakes or things that you don't like, but you cannot bring everything up. And that, it's also hard for me, but it's something that you also have to learn. Yeah. Okay, this is great. I want to talk to you more now. I feel like we got a great connection over here. Don't if you're listening to this, we're going to get more Ganto. We need more. <laughs> who is one other person that I should since you know DGMG, you know the this podcast, who should I have on? I I need one. I need one hot intro from you. Let me think about it. I think have you talked to G? Like G is amazing. I'm a big Yeah, fan last of week. Him. I talked to G last week. Yes. <laughs> I might put your episode first though. Why? No, I don't know. Just mix it up. Mix it up. <laughs> Let me think somebody else. Another one that I admire is I actually have somebody that is very like brand marketing focused that used to work at Outsido that she's very good on the other side. Like I admire her on how to think about brand and stuff like that. So I'm happy to make an intro on that if you want. Does she have a name? Yes. She's Erin Weaver. Great. I just wanted to plug. Yeah. Intro me. Gondo, this is fantastic. Where can people find you, follow you if they want to stay up to date on what you're doing? So you can follow me on Twitter at mgonto. And as I said, I'm going to put like a shameless plug. If you have a company that is looking for help on hypergrowth, you can contact me and G at gonto at hypergrowth.bc. And I'd be happy to talk to you. Yeah, I mean, if you're listening, not not even to plug that, but if you can get those, if you have a B2B SaaS company, you can get help from those two fellas. You should do it. Gonto, this is great. Let's stay in touch. I'll keep you posted when this runs. Great to talk to you. I'm glad we did it and I'll, I'll see you later. Thank you. Thank you. 
Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the DGMG podcast. If you learned anything new from this episode or got one valuable piece of marketing knowledge, it'd make my day to leave a review. I like to look at them. I like to see what people are thinking and hear about. Or if you didn't like it, leave me some feedback. Otherwise, I will talk to you on the next episode. See ya.